The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. The latest trends and hottest topics, love and sex, handled honestly and with passion. Here's Dr. Lori, CJAD 800. Welcome to the Friday edition of Passion. Tonight I'm going to share some stories with you. Uh, Pornography of adult consensual sex, no longer taboo in Britain. I'll tell you about the legalities of that. Uh, Science says it's totally fine to have babies after 35. And some really funny quotes from people who really did not understand how the female body works and goes to show you how little education there is out there. But first... Time to check out our inbox. Your calls and texts are always welcome. Connect with Passion now at 514-790-0800 or 514-800. In the first segment of every show, I like to get to your questions and your concerns, so you can send them to me at 514-800. But you can also email me anytime during the week, lori at drlaurie.com. So this on the text board, uh, do you have experience with or can you comment on the effects of antipsychotic medications on a woman or man's fertility? I was on psych meds for 25 years and it caused variable menses. I am entering menopause, 51 years old. Thanks for your show. So, uh, yes, there is definitely an impact on, uh, on one's fertility. So what, what ends up happening with antipsychotics, at least many of them, and certainly the older ones, there are newer ones that have less of a, an effect on fertility, but they cause elevated levels of prolactin, which is what is the hormone that can lead to uh, irregular cycles, irregular periods, and also can prevent uh, ovulation. ovulation. So if you are planning to have a baby well you're 51 so at this point you're not having any kids uh, but for other people who uh, may be on these uh, this class of medication talk talking to your doctor reducing the meds talking uh, about uh, maybe a different kind of medication with less of that kind of effect would be a good place to start uh, it has the same effect on men as well it could also affect the production of uh, sperm. So there is a relationship between infertility and uh, being on antipsychotic medications. But now as you're entering menopause, you're going to have irregular periods anyway or no periods at all. And uh, at this point, there is no fertility, but you will start experiencing uh, in the next uh, five years, between now and next five years or so, some different changes to your body. Uh, So menopausal changes may include, uh, could be all of them, could be very few symptoms, uh, but there are changes. So a lot of women will report hot flashes and night sweats and difficulty sleeping. Some report a lower libido. Uh, Vaginal dryness is a a big one. Uh, vaginal atrophy as well. So the vagina kind of uh, shrinks in size a little bit, especially if it's not being used. Uh, So those are some of the impact on uh, uh, after uh, menopause. Also low lubrication, so lack of lubrication, even when aroused, by the way. So for older women, uh, well, for younger women, arousal brings lubrication, just like for men, arousal brings erection. Uh, But with uh, menopause, you can still be aroused but have very little uh, lubrication. So really important to use an external uh, lubricant. All right, I have some other questions for you. Uh, 
here by email. Uh, I was diagnosed with uh, congestive heart failure in September, and I'm currently on several heart meds. I've never had problems getting hard before. Could my heart meds be affecting my ability? And if so, what can I do about it? It cost me a girlfriend already, and, and I'm at my wit's end. So I, I'm going to answer this in the best way that I can, but bear in mind, I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm a clinical psychologist. I specialize in sexuality. I know a lot about sexuality and the way the body function, but I, this does not replace medical advice, please. Uh, so, but there, in answer to this question, certainly some heart and blood pressure medication could cause sexual issues. Uh, but, but maintaining a healthy heart has to be your first priority. You need to speak to uh, your cardiologist. You need to find out if you can change your medication to one that maybe um, has less sexual side effects. You do not stop taking your heart medication. If you are on nitrates, which is another heart medication, uh, you should not be taking erectile dysfunction drugs like uh, Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, etc. These drugs could actually make your blood pressure drop and put you in danger. So uh, for cases like this, you can try using a penile pump, like a penis pump, or what's called an, a vacuum erection device. And what this does is uh, it will pump blood into your penis. This may be uh, your only option, and the, these are options that you should be discussing with your heart doctor and also possibly with uh, a urologist. It's too bad that this has cost you uh, a relationship or that a, a girlfriend wouldn't stand by you, help you, uh, be patient with you, figure out other ways. After all, sexuality is far more than an erection. And you can pleasure a partner, a, girl, a woman, uh, with your hand, your mouth, many other ways. And there are other options, too, you can wear. Uh, if you absolutely cannot get an erection, then there are uh, strap-on devices where you it's like a sleeve to put your penis in that could provide her with uh, the, the, uh, the feelings from penetration, if that's what she needs, a stimulation from penetration. I mean, there are different options, but somebody who would leave you over that you've got a question there's a bigger question than just simply about uh, about sexuality and i don't know if she's taking it personally or she's thinking it's because of her well that's somebody who hasn't bothered to look into this with you uh, and so maybe not worth uh, keeping her around anyway uh, as this texter writes as well things not functioning should not be a reason to break up with uh, somebody should not cost the relationship. Absolutely, I, it should not cost the relationship. And if it does, you should question the relationship and you should question the partner that you're uh, with, especially when s things can be done. Like you can, you know, things can be done. And sex does not, in a healthy long-term relationship, sex isn't at the very top priority. It really isn't. There has to be so many other things in that relationship uh, to make it work. Uh, obviously, sex is important, but you have to look at sex you have to, with a, a wider definition of what sex is. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, I've been on the website seeking arrangements for a long time. I've met a few guys. Usually it doesn't lead further than the first date, but I've had scary. I've had a scary experience once before on the site. 
Then I came back reserved but cautiously optimistic. So now I'm worried about meeting people online in real life. What should I do? And this is a really good question uh, because, first of all, so many people are online. And I, as I'm reading this question, I can't help but think of this show that I'm watching now, which is scary. It's scaring me, although I'm not dating online, but if I were, it would be, uh, it would certainly make me think. It's a, a series on Netflix called Dirty John uh, with Eric Bana, and it's basically the story of a psychopath um, who goes about getting what he wants from women and relationships, and it all starts with online, and he tells them he's a doctor, shows up in scrubs all the time, and he's not, none of those things, and he creates such elaborate, elaborate lies, and the scary thing, it's based on on true story like this is based on a true story so it's quite scary uh, so do your due diligence always and you don't need to take everyone at their um, at their word like there was one person that he uh, ended up going online she and he told her I'm a doctor at such and such hospital she checked and then checked all the other hospitals and he was nowhere listed and told him to just uh, you know disappear and so it didn't work with her but then he gets on with uh, with other women uh, who are maybe a little more naive, intelligent women, but maybe naive in this uh, in, in this area. So it's unfortunate when you have these scary experiences, but this is why you meet in a public place, you make your own way there always, um, you do not get picked up at home, you do not share personal information, not even your last name, do not give out your phone number, you make your first date a very short coffee date, and of course you have to be uh, quite uh, cautious. So all those things are things to consider when online dating. Coming up, we'll talk about uh, pornography of adult consensual sex, uh, which is uh, no longer taboo. It once was, at least at the border. So I'll tell you about that. Your relationship's on the line. Connect with Dr. Lori now. 514-790-0800. Passion. News Talk Radio. CJAD 800. A little bit of everything on Friday night and your thoughts. Has anybody seen the new net, the Netflix series Dirty John? It is freaking me out. It is so intense. Uh, just from a psychological perspective, it, it, it just uh, showcases how uh, a psychopath basically goes about uh, meeting women, duping women. It's crazy and apparently based on some true life thing. I don't know the backstory. I'm going to have to lo look into this, but I've been binging it and it is nuts. Has anybody else seen it? And when you do, uh, let me know. I want to know what you think about that and if it scares you as well, especially if you're single, like, oof, makes you think really. Uh, let's talk about pornography for a moment. Uh, so pornography produced by consenting adults engaging in legal acts will no longer be prosecuted under Britain's historic obscenity laws. This is brand new uh, this year. So the Obscene Publications Act dates back to 1959 and is designed to protect the public from material that could, quote, deprave and corrupt their minds. The law was famously invoked in the unsuccessful prosecution of D.H. Lawrence's novel Lady Chatterley's Lover. 
that tells you how old that is, uh, but in recent years has been largely used in cases involving uh, pornography. However, juries have increasingly taken a liberal view on whether material is likely to corrupt the minds of the British public, making it difficult for the authorities to achieve a successful prosecution. In 2012, a jury cleared uh, Sleazy um, after a landmark case during which uh, Sleazy is a guy, Michael Peacock, uh, which the court watched hours of DVDs featuring consensual male fisting, urination, and BDSM activities before concluding they did not find it obscene. Imagine a courtroom out watching hours of pornography. Um, a spokesperson confirmed the change, which followed a public consultation. It is not for the CPS to decide what is considered good taste or objectionable. We do not propose to bring charges based on material that depicts consensual and legal activity between adults where no serious harm is caused and the likely audience is over the age of 18. Obviously, they will continue to keep an eye on anything which crosses the line into criminal conduct, which we know a lot of things that are, uh, you know, criminal, that uh, depict criminal stuff. Uh, so that's not, this is just a question of uh, uh, catching up with social standards of what is uh, depraved and corrupting. Uh, what do you think about this? Five one four eight hundred. So we'll no longer be uh, you. You won't get arrested at the border if you have some something which shows consensual acts between people. Uh, you know that big statue of the sailor uh, with the uh, coming home from war, and it's it's sometimes called the kiss. It's also called the Unconditional Surrender Statue, at least in Sarasota. That's what it call, it's called. Well, apparently it was vandalized with a, two, uh, with a Me Too uh, message. So they found the phrase, hashtag Me Too, written red along the length of the nurse's left leg. So this statue is modeled after the famous kissing photo that was taken in Times Square on the day Japan surrendered in 1945, which ended World War II. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, statue, um, but uh, not sure who did it, why they did it. They're asking for information. If you live in the area, you might want to call Infocrim or whatever is the equivalent there. Uh, eight facts about love and marriage in America. So this is a collection of studies that have been done and uh, um, surveys to look at the state of marriage, who's getting married, when are they getting married, and what people feel about marriage. This is uh, across the U.S., but I have a feeling that some of these things would be very similar here. Uh, so half of Americans age 18 and older were married in 2017, a share that has remained relatively stable in recent years, but is down eight percentage points since uh, 1990. And really what's happening is that uh, Americans are staying single longer. The median age at first marriage had reached its highest point on record, 30 years old for men and 28 years old for women in uh, 2018, which is what a difference from, let's say, a mere 50 uh, years ago. 
Love tops the list of Americans' reasons to marry. About 9 in 10 Americans cited love as a very important reason to get married ahead of making a lifelong commitment, which was 81%, and companionship, 76%. And this was according to a 2013 Pew Research Center survey. Um, Let's see, what else was there? The number of U.S. adults... Living together with a partner is on the rise, and I would bet you if the numbers, if they had numbers in comparison with Canada, we'd probably have more here, especially in Quebec. But the number of Americans living with an unmarried partner reached about 18 million in 2016. That is up 29% since 2007. Uh, Roughly half of people who live together are younger than 35, but it's quickly rising among Americans age 50 and older. And most people who were interviewed about this say that couples living together without being married does not make a difference for our society. So people don't don't think marriage is all that important anymore. A remarriage is on the rise. In 2013, 23% of married people had been married before. That's almost a quarter of married people had been married once before, at least once before, compared with just 13% in uh, 1960. Four in 10 new marriages in 2013 included a spouse who had already uh, been married. One in six newlyweds were married to someone of a different race or ethnicity in 2015, which reflects a steady increase in intermarriage since 1967, when back then it was just 3% of newlyweds who were uh, intermarried. The ones most likely to intermarry in the U.S. are Asians and uh, Hispanics, but the most dramatic increase in intermarriage have occurred among black newlyweds, 18% of whom married someone of a different race or ethnicity. Uh, support for the legalization of same-sex marriage has grown in the past 10 years. I don't think that's uh, a surprise. Uh, in 2007, Americans opposed legalizing same-sex marriage by a margin of 54 to 37. In 2017, it's 62% favored it, whereas only 32% uh, opposed it. So, And now... Um, a majority of all uh, same-sex couples who live together are uh, legally married. Another little tidbit about marriage. Uh, Millennials and Generation Z have been at the vanguard of changing views on same-sex marriage. About half of Gen Zers and Millennials say gay and lesbian couples being allowed to marry is a good thing for uh, society. And lastly, sizable minorities of married people are members of a different religious group than their partner. But guess what? Marriages and partnerships across political party lines are relatively rare. When it comes to politics, 77% of both Republicans and Democrats who are married or living with a partner said their spouse or partner was in the same party. We don't, I'm not sure that that would be such an issue here because it's, it doesn't seem to be such huge, uh, like su- such opposing uh, views, but who knows? It would be interesting to see the differences with uh, here. Uh, so John Gottman is uh, a very famous uh, researcher uh, on relationships, has done extensive work like longitudinal studies 
and on marriage. So he, basically a longitudinal study is when you study a group of people over the like you follow them for years, sometimes decades, and you're measuring stuff along the way. Uh, and so you get like such rich data from this because you get to see people, uh, though, for example, in his work, he got to see what were the variables that kept relationships together and which ones um, broke couples apart. Like who were the couples that, that stayed together and who were those that divorced? And he got so good at this with so, so much data that he was able to predict, in fact, which couples would eventually uh, divorce and then managed to verify his hypotheses with actual uh, actual data. So I'm going to share with you coming up the variables that determines whether a marriage may succeed or fail. And I want you to think about this and think about does where does your marriage fit on this or where does your relationship uh, fit on this spectrum? How many of these variables do you have, it made me think a lot and I, I hope it'll make you think. And if you don't have all of these variables, think about why not and then how to get them and how to work towards that kind of relationship. And if need be, get counseling, get marriage counseling so that you can strengthen your bond and strengthen the relationship. So coming up, we'll talk about all the signs of lasting relationships. What makes those that last different from those that divorce? That's coming up after we check in with our CJD 800 newsroom. The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. From the pleasure to the pain and everything in between. Passion with Dr. Lori. News Talk Radio. CJD 800. So what are the variables that determine whether you will have a happy marriage? John Gottman and his team basically observed couples uh, and they observed them talking about their relationships uh, in a lab setting and which means they had like specific things they had to, they were talking about, they observed specific things and they did this over time. And these are, they, they, they concluded with the fall, with qualities and characteristics, um, when couples talked and how they talked about their relationship that determined success of their relationship. And these were some of the things that they found. So think about whether you, uh, would describe or talk about your relationship in the same way. They used fondness, affection, admiration, either verbally or non-verbally. So the couple basically expresses warmth and humor and affection, and they emphasize the good times. They compliment their partner. Those would be more successful. Of course, you'll see there's a, a few more. Uh, the couple that emphasizes their ability to communicate well and their unity. In other words, they talk in terms of togetherness. They talk in terms of uh, they use words like uh, we and us and our, as opposed to I, me, or mine. So they describe themselves as a team. Uh, another uh, quality or another variable is something called expansiveness versus withdrawal. So the couple uh, describes memories about their shared past vividly and distinctly 
versus vaguely or more generally with inability to recall details. The happy couples or the ones that uh, succeed are positive and energetic when they talk about their relationship versus the ones who are more likely to fail who lack are talking about it lacking energy and enthusiasm when they recall uh, their past. They express intimate information about themselves rather than staying impersonal and guarded. Uh, another variable is that the couples tend to glorify the struggle. That's how they call it, glorifying the struggle. Basically, the couple expresses pride that they have survived difficult times versus the couples who are more likely to fail were the ones who were expressing the hopelessness of their hard times. Uh, the couples uh, who succeed emphasize their commitment to the relationship versus questioning whether they should really be with the partner. They are proud of their relationship versus being ashamed of their relationship. And they talk about their shared values, their shared goals, and uh, life philosophy. They found that if a couple starts by expressing negativity towards each other in the interview, whether it's in words or facial expressions, think of eye rolling, uh, body language, uh, like cynicism, sarcasm, the eye rolling thing, uh, that signals that a negative switch has flipped. This is how they describe it. And it almost inevitably predicts a relationship that will decline over time. So I'm going to say that again because it's really important and couples that express negativity towards each other. So couples who talk to each other, look at each other with sarcasm, cynicism, they, 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 uh, roll their eyes at each other, uh, whether they, they talk with negative words, it's may puts a negative it flips a negative switch in the brain and in the heart, basically. And it's a predictor that the relationship will decline over time. Also, if the couple expresses disappointment in the relationship or feeling disillusioned as if marriage isn't what they thought it would be, or if they're depressed, hopeless, and bitter about their relationship, well, they say divorce is likely. Now, remember, they followed these couples. They were able to do, this is all predictive. They were able to predict this in couples, and then they were able to see the outcome once they had their predictions in, um, in place. So it's not to say that negative things and regrettable things don't happen in relationships. They're inevitable in all, in all relationships. But the positive switch is how couples positively interpret their negative events and their partner's character and whether in their minds on an everyday basis they tend to maximize the positive and minimize the negative in their partner and in the relationships it's always it's like looking at the glass half half full or half empty but you're doing that within uh, the relationship so when you look at your partner half empty or negatively that over time erodes the relationship over time. So it's really important when you, if you start to feel yourself that way, you, you need to take charge, take stock of the relationship and see what needs fixing and get the help that you need so that you feel that you are together as a team and that you have developed a, a bond of friendship. Like this is where, um, 
friendship is really important. And what they say is that couples that have a, a core or a, a foundation of friendship are the ones who are most likely uh, to succeed. So think about that. To me, that gave me a, a lot, a lot to think about. And Grace says, kind of sounds like common sense, doesn't it? Of course, it's common sense, but a lot of things in life are common sense. And what's interesting, in my profession as a psychologist, a lot of it is common sense. People just need to sometimes hear it and be reminded of it. It's like not rocket science here, but it puts the, uh, what it does is it identifies specific variables that of course we think when we hear them that, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. But we often don't stop to think about what we're feeling, how we're relating, the impact of all of this. So, and that's part of living a much more conscious and mindful life. And when you go to a psychologist, you, you end up doing that. You end up bringing a lot of things to the conscious level and you're, you're kind of holding up a mirror to yourself and, and looking at this stuff, look and examining and it's like unpacking a bag basically and examining the contents. Um, and which is sometimes really, really important to do. Something scary is going on in the world. And that is, uh, the, uh, the burgeoning demand for labia reduction. This was an article that was in the Le, Le Journal de Montréal and talking about Quebec, uh, women. So they talked to Quebec women and Quebec doctors who, uh, perform genital surgery. And they say that, uh, women seeking out genital surgery simply for aesthetic reasons, there's nothing wrong with their labia is increasing at breakneck speed. And this is according to the, uh, the professionals. So the, the official word for it is labia plasty. You know, you think of rhinoplasty as a nose job. Labia plasty is a labia job basically. Uh, so, or it's sometimes called vaginal rejuvenation, designer vaginas. You might've heard all of that, but this is the largest, uh, we're seeing the largest increase in the number of these kinds of procedures compared to like in 217, those are the years they had them for, uh, compared to the previous years, 23% more in 2017 than in, in 2016. And some surgeons are in fact saying that they have overwhelming numbers of requests for these kinds of surgeries that they don't even have space for, for all of them. Uh, one doctor says girls are going crazy with this. Uh, patients come to see me after having been operated on elsewhere. Um, and, sh and she says, and I refuse to do, uh, anything in terms of what remains of their, uh, inner, inner labia. So quite scary. Uh, another uh, surgeon says, uh, my patients hear about this operation on forums. They see videos on YouTube and they say, huh, why not? Uh, he also states that, uh, people who are asking for labiaplasty are predominantly women get this between the age of 18 to 22. So these are young women. What is going on here? And, and they all have the same conclusion the majority of the patients, the vast majority who come in asking for labiaplasty all have one thing in common. Their labia minora do not present 
any abnormalities. There is nothing wrong with them, but they all want to look like a porn star. Porn star genitalia, by the way, are sanitized and perfect, kind of like perfect small lips. And this is where people are getting, uh, uh, feel less confident about their own vulvas, basically, because that's what they see. The same way that men will see penises, large penises, and say, and feel uh, the lack of confidence of their own size. So that's quite scary, unfortunately. Uh, coming up, I want to share some funny quotes with you uh, from people who really didn't understand how the female body works. It's quite funny to see the lack of uh, sexual knowledge, actually. That's coming up. It's Sex Out Loud, and you're welcome to listen in. Passion on CJAD 800. Talking about uh, just before about labiaplasty. So just to recap, labiaplasty is women who are requesting to have their labia menorah basically trimmed, uh, usually so that they don't protrude at all. And then a texture writes, are these mostly Muslims? And I don't see the relationship between those two things. So no, the answer would be no. I have not seen uh, that they are of any one uh, religious affiliation at all. So maybe you're thinking of uh, hymenectomies that in some uh, religions where they value uh, virginity at marriage, that some people get uh, a hymen, basically uh, hymen restoration surgeries done, which does happen in, in various, uh, within various populations where that's an important factor. Uh, to prove where they have to kind of prove virginity. So I have spoken to uh, gynecologists who have been asked to 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 do these procedures uh, quite often. Uh, and by the way, for women who have abnormal um, labia, meaning that they they cause a lot of discomfort. They, uh, when they wear tight clothes, where they get in the way, when sex hurts because of this, that is covered by Medicare, but that's a very different situation. That is not what the majority of uh, plastic surgeons are seeing. They're seeing women with perfectly normal vulvas requesting these kinds of procedures. So I read something really funny on BuzzFeed and I just, uh, I had to share because they were just ridiculous assumptions about the female body. Uh, and they like BuzzFeed put this out to their uh, community, their readership to say, to ask like, what are some of the, uh, looking at, at, at different responses, right? They asked them like, what have they ever heard about the, uh, the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard about the female body. And there's a whole bunch, but I want to share a few of them. I've had uh, multiple cis male friends of mine have the misconception that the vagina is an opening on the front of crotch area right around where the penis would be if the individual had a penis. They didn't believe the clit existed, just a vast hole. Apparently, this is a decently common misconception. Go American healthcare system. Uh, another one says, I was told by another girl in high school that when nuns take their vows in the Catholic church, their menstrual cycles immediately stop for life because they will not be having children. Again, uh, one of my exes didn't know ejaculating in a girl is what caused pregnancy. He said it only worked if you really meant it. Imagine. 
Another one says, so I was talking to this friend of mine in school and she probably believed her whole life that you could only get pregnant once and then you'll just have to wait to see if it, if you'll get one, two or more children. She thought that once you got pregnant, there were one, two or more single seeds in your body and these will determine how many children you'd get over the years. Some of these are like, these are not from children. These are either from adults or uh, teenagers. Uh, I had a boyfriend who thought that after giving birth, the vagina stayed that stretched out. Like it was literally just baby size for the rest of your life. Uh, another, uh, another one says I had a boyfriend who asked if it felt good putting a tampon in. He legit thought you could orgasm from it. When I was in high school, this guy in my science class overheard my friend and I talking about shaving and he immediately interrupted. Why are you guys talking about that? Women don't have to shave because they don't grow hair. Goes to show you when you watch porn, there's no hair there. So they think women don't grow hair. Again, it's a, it, this is an indication of how little sex education people actually get. Uh, one time I told my best friend that I was on my period and suddenly he had this confused look on his face and he asked, isn't it the 13th today? I was like, um, yeah, he actually thought all girls get their periods on a specific date of the month. Um, I had a female friend tell me once that she was afraid she wouldn't be able to get pregnant because she couldn't orgasm from vaginal penetration. She thought she and her husband, husband needed to climax simultaneously for conception to occur. Uh, another, this is, this is a kicker one, a uh, former coworker of mine said it was fine that her boyfriend came in her because afterwards she would just pee it all out. My other coworker who was pregnant and I just stared at her in complete silence. So these are from, uh, adult people who have these crazy ideas about female, um, the female body. Interesting, huh? A little scary, frankly. Uh, Bob writes, labiaplasty and other genital modification is a fashion statement. It's become the cool new thing. Look what I've done to my blank. There is no overwhelming need in the vast majority of cases to modify the labia or the foreskin. There is an, it's an elective cosmetic folly. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's uh, for the most part, this is a cosmetic procedure, overwhelmingly cosmetic. So, uh, most, uh, people don't realize that labia and vulvas all look different and they can be different shapes and sizes and lengths of labia and different color, different colors, well, colors, different shades of skin color. Um, they are that they're different. That's it. <laughs> Text one. So why are they so misinformed? Uh, People are misinformed when it comes to sexuality. You would be surprised. Now, I happen to answer questions. I answer questions here all the time. I answer questions on many other forums as well. And it's shocking how misinformed people are around the world, around the world. I get questions from around the world. In different places are more misinformed than others. But this is... I don't know. With everything we have access to, you would think that people would be more informed, but I'm not sure where people are getting their information from. I really, either they're just, I don't know. I, it, it, I don't know. I, I'm still at a loss, but all I know is we have to work really hard to inform the public continuously. And I've made it, as you can see, my, my life's work to do that. I'm not even sure how it all started for me, but this is, this is what my life has become. It's, it's about teaching people 
sexual wellness and uh, and informing people and working on education and not just education of the young. Obviously, if you're listening to this show, you should be over 18, uh, but it's educating all of us. Uh, the adult population and the senior population. I talk to seniors all the time uh, and there's misinformation there too about sex and aging and and such. So it's all over the place and we have to uh, do our, at least do our part to, uh, to educate and, and fight some of these misconceptions and a whole lot of myths when it comes to sexuality. The last thing I want to share with you is uh, a little bit of good news because we've often been told that after 35, it's like, oh, you're waiting to, you're too old to have babies. You've waited too long. Your biological clock is done. Well, that's not true anymore because women are in fact putting off motherhood uh, to much later. Um, it's normal now to uh, be having your babies in your 30s or even uh, 40s and certainly having a baby after 35 is just not that unusual anymore and it isn't even that much more difficult according to this study uh, they say science is well this report science is finally coming around to the fact that being of advanced maternal age isn't necessarily a hindrance and can in fact be beneficial. Listen to this. The National Center for Health Statistics says that the fastest growing group of women having children are in their 40s, which of course is a huge leap from women just decades ago. Uh, But women in their 30s and 40s are generally healthy enough to conceive naturally. But even if they can't, uh, science has come a long way. So we have IVF, donor eggs with lots and lots of options. Uh, And an ongoing study called the New England Centenarian Study has found that having a baby later in life can actually help you live longer. They found that having a baby when you're older can help you uh, can help you live a happier, more carefree life. Surprisingly, right? Uh, in fact, research shows that older parents tend to be happier in general. Another study found that having a baby after the age of 35 can actually make you smarter and improve your memory, problem-solving skills, and mental reasoning. So, if you're not pregnant yet and you're 35 or pushing 35 or older, there are options is the, the, the happy message there. Uh, thank you all so much for spending your time with me tonight and during the week if you've been here. Uh, thank you to our technical producer, uh, Dave Simon. You can connect with me on social media at Dr. Lori Batito or through my website, drlori.com. Coming up next on CJD, the CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening and remember to live your life with passion.